Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Days of Our Policing Lives, Mayor Brenda Locke joins us for the latest on Surrey's policing soap opera. Plus, porch pirates won't quit. How can you stop them from stealing your holiday cheer? And Incredible Crossings, a new book looks back at an era where infrastructure wasn't politicized and celebrates our province's proud history of building bridges, tunnels, and inland ferries that connect BC. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's talk Surrey policing. Last night, City Council in Surrey voted 6-3 to send a plan to the province to keep the RCMP as its police force, saying it would save $235 million over five years. Now, Mayor Brenda Locke, who campaigned on a promise to retain the RCMP, says that savings for Surrey taxpayers are enormous and the city must stick with the Mounties because it can't afford to make the changes. Now, the report says the cost of 734 officers with the Surrey Police Service would be $249,000 per officer, while each Mountie would be $205,000, so about a $45,000 per officer savings. The city says the plan will be sent to Solicitor General Mike Farnworth by December 15th for his final review and approval, and Locke says she expects an answer back by early uh, in the new year. Joining us now to discuss last night's vote and the move forward is Mayor of Surrey, Brenda Locke. Brenda, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Great to be here. Um, so let's let's talk about the vote first and foremost from last night. Do you still feel confident this is the right direction for the city to go? Because it, it's a big decision. It's controversial. Uh, it's high profile. Do you still feel conf- confident this is the right direction for the city of Surrey? You know, Jazz, I have never been so confident in a decision like this ever. I am absolutely confident we are doing the right thing for the citizens and for the taxpayers of the city of Surrey, there's no doubt in my mind. Now, the savings in the report, the report says it'll be $235 million over five years in savings by keeping or staying with the RCMP. Does that savings include capital costs and so like the purchase of equipment, those types of things, or, uh, or is, are the savings potentially more? Well, the savings are are absolutely more, and uh, the report does indicate that there is no capital expenditure in there, or very little. So, for example, the uh, Surrey Police Service has been on the record as saying it's going to be over $100 million for the uh, IT side of the uh, expenditure of the capital costs. That is not, uh, that's not captured in in the five, or sorry, in the 235. So all of those start to ramp up, and pretty quickly. The other one is the training facility. The uh, Surrey Police Service wants to build their own training facility, and certainly we know uh, just by looking at the experience of other jurisdictions that have built them, that's a very, very costly uh, item, uh, probably north of $35 million, but it could be more and more than that. So I just want to clarify this. I know most people, most reporters uh, and the public uh, have heard of the $235 million savings mm-hmm. over five years. What you're telling me here is that with this training center, with other costs, in re- capital costs, the savings are even higher than the $235 million captured by the report. Absolutely. And last night uh, during our council session when uh, one of our councillors, uh, Councillor Cooner, uh, directly asked those questions on cost. She's an accountant, so she uh, really fine-lined into some of those um, expenditures. And, and it was clear that it's going to be extremely um, 
costly for the city of Surrey, and the 235 is just the beginning. So I'm just looking, based on your numbers, about $100 million for um, uh, the capital cost. We talked about $35 million. Yeah. We're talking about the... Uh, the training center from 235 that comes out to about nearly about 370 million in savings not just the 235 over 5 years captured by the report right and then on top of that when you look at the numbers the in order to be um, very fair and and i think that's what our uh, staff at surrey were trying to do um, they just counted it as 734 members um, police officers mm-hmm. we know that um, the uh, Surrey Police Service wants to make that a significantly larger uh, complement, and so there's going to be that increase too, but that isn't accounted for in in the report. It was just trying to be as fair as they could be. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, according to the SPS, the unrecoverable sunk costs related to the transition are expected to reach $107 million, terminating the transition by next January, uh, very close in next year, uh, will result in a projected investment loss of another $81.5 million. Do you buy those numbers? You know, um, it's it's great that all of a sudden the Surrey Police Service is starting to share numbers with us. Um, as I'm sure many people know, we have been, I have been asking for the numbers for Surrey Police Service for the last three and a half years. And certainly I asked for a line-by-line budget just two years ago from them. All of a sudden in the last probably uh, two weeks now, we're starting to see numbers come out of the Surrey Police Service. Do I buy them? Not really, because I can tell you that the City of Surrey staff have been working on this diligently for a number of years. They knew exactly where to go to uh, to do the uh, cost implications that they have uncovered. So I have all the confidence in the world in uh, our city staff. Uh, do you uh, believe the SPS should have been consulted, though, before this report was presented to council, at least to get their perspective on some of the savings? You know, um, that's kind of an important question, and, and it's part of what this study was all about. The financial analysis was done by the City of Surrey staff. We're talking CAs and CPAs. It was a team of them. And they were utilizing the draft provisional budgets that both policing agencies gave to them. So the, it, this is all information that they've garnered from um, from the policing agencies. But the assumptions never came from the RCMP or the SPS. Neither of them had direct input into the outcome of the uh, report. Hmm. Now, uh, this report will be presented to Solicitor General Mike Farnworth by December 15th. Do you have a sense of when you think a decision may come from Victoria? You know, I know that... um, I know that uh, the minister, I know that the premier knows how critically important this is to uh, to deal with and get it through. So I know that they will do it as quickly as possible. And I'm very hopeful that it will be right in the beginning of the new year. Uh, if you get the decision in regards to what you're hoping for, uh, one would say, well, the, the issue ends there. Uh, but it's been very divisive uh, in, in Surrey uh, along, uh, some would say, geographic lines and some would even say racial lines. Uh, you have groups like Wake Up Surrey. You have even temples, uh, Sikh temples, saying that we, they want the SPS um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, it seems to me you have a lot of work to do. What, if the decision is favorable with what you want, 
in your own community to sort of, um, uh, you know, get people talking again uh, and sort of unite your own community? You know, um, I would... I would say you're absolutely right. We do have to, this has been a very divisive issue for for the city of Surrey, for some of our residents. There is no doubt about that. But I do not believe that it is a racial issue. I do believe, though, it is a political issue. And that political issue was driven by the former uh, mayor and his team. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt about it. There are lots of people from all demographics that support keeping the RCMP in Surrey. And uh, we know from all of the polling we've seen that the numbers to keep the RCMP as the police of jurisdiction in our city are as strong today as they were uh, a year ago or two years ago. So I am not concerned about that part, but I am concerned that it has become a wedge issue in this city, and, and we do have to make people have confidence in the police um, in the police in their city, there's no doubt. What has changed, final question, what did change your mind? I mean, you four years ago ran with Mr. McCallum, um, supportive of, of what he had talked about, and here we are today, you are supportive of the RCMP staying. What in your mind changed? We never did our due diligence, Jazz. This whole process has been built on a bed of sand. There's, uh, There has been no feasibility studies, no cost-benefit analysis, no impact studies. We don't know the impact. And now we're even hearing from other RCMP cities in Metro Vancouver. They're saying, please don't do this. This is going to destabilize um, policing in Metro Vancouver. So it is problematic, not just in Surrey, but throughout our region. Brenda, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Last night, City Council in Surrey voted 6-3 to send a plan to the province to keep the RCMP as its police force, saying it would save $235 million over five years. Mayor Brenda Locke, who was on the show at 3 o'clock today, campaigned on a promise to retain the RCMP, saying that the savings for three taxpayers are enormous and the city must stick with the Mounties because it can't afford to uh, make the change. Now, not everyone agrees with last night's vote. Gurpreet Sahoda represents a group that... Uh, called for a municipal police force to deal with the crime and gang activity in Surrey, uh, saying he wants to see more officers and the Surrey Police Service are better equipped to deal with um, policing challenges uh, in Surrey than the Mounties. Gurpreet Sahoda is the organizer for Wake Up Surrey. Gurpreet, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Jess, for taking me. Uh, why do you think Surrey should keep the Surrey Police Service uh, and uh, discard the RCMP? Uh, 100%. Surrey should keep the Surrey police as all the cities in Canada, uh, the major big cities, has their own local and municipal police. Your core challenge, to my understanding, is that uh, young people uh, are dying in Surrey because of uh, gang violence, particularly South Asian males. Mm-hmm. What, yes. what, te- what convinces you that a municipal police force is going to be any better at solving that issue than the Surrey RCMP? Uh, the problem is it's a multi-layered issue. Uh, policing is not the only uh, solution, but it's a major one. Uh, so if you see local places in uh, Delta, Abbotsford, especially, they had problem as well. 
but they are successfully uh, worked and uh, they are successful in it. Uh, when the police officers will be local, not from Halifax, not from Edmonton, not from Montreal or Toronto, they know everyone here. They know the locality, the issues, the culture, and uh, all, all about the Surrey. And uh, most of them went to same schools where the gangsters went. So they know wh- how they can move forward. They have a personal belonging. Their families are here. Mm-hmm. So they will they will work here, and uh, uh, they will try to save their kids and families here as well. Otherwise, the person who's coming for two years from Halifax or Toronto, uh, he doesn't have a ties here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can't buy a home here. It's very expensive. His, uh, his thing will be like, I want to work here for two years, and we'll go back, number one. Second thing is... If we will have a Surrey police, uh, it will be locally, more local programs as Delta and Abbotsford is doing, and uh, it will be more uh, successful. Uh, we, we, will, we can send more people uh, to school as schools as school liaison officers. It's a big demand here. And uh, RCMP officers, they are doing great. Uh, they are doing uh, whatever they can. But the shortage of uh, uh, the members on ground making things difficult and uh, they can't work out because they have a shortage of 30% nationwide. Mm. So, uh, and I understand the concerns that you uh, have expressed in regards to perhaps they're not from here originally, but when police officers move to the lower mainland, they do eventually uh, set down roots, they get an understanding of the community. Uh, They're a part of the community. Um, Would one not argue that the challenges that are there for those who get involved with the gang lifestyle are much more deeper and complex than any police force, whether it's municipal or RCMP, is going to be able to solve. I mean, in some cases, in in a really bad year, 40% of the murders in the Lower Mainland are of South Asian males. I I don't see how a municipal police force or RCMP are going to be able to deal with the broader, more deeper questions that have allowed these kids to get into this lifestyle. We have to tackle that, and I fully understand that. But is it fair to say that one police force is going to be any better than another police force to solve this issue? As Jess, I said earlier, it's a multi-layers issue, and uh, I have no regret to admitting that it's a South Asian problem as it. So we are working on that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the community level, we are going into schools. Uh, we are meeting parents and kids at risk. We're doing everything we can. Mm-hmm. But we have a result in front of us. You see Abbotsford. Uh, most of the people, uh, most of the uh, youngsters involved were South Asians as well. And look at the results, how they cleared it all in two years. Because they have a local control. They are local. They know people. Mm-hmm. And they have a will to clean the city. Uh, there has also been, uh, I think, six temples who have come out uh, in support of the Surrey Police Service and religious institutions to come out uh, and speak on this issue is, is unique. Uh, but having covered organized crime, particularly with South Asians in my early days as a reporter, not once have I ever seen any of these gangsters talk about the, the, the temple, the Gurdwara, the mandir, the mosque, uh, the church, the synagogue, is what's going to save them, that these issues are much deeper and complex. Do you think religious institutions should be recommending one type of police force over another type of police force? I can't uh, talk about them on, on their behalf, but there's a, uh, a common sentiment in the community hmm. that uh, local police works better. In people, in people in Surrey, we talk about don't drink and drive in Delta. In Surrey, 
we talk about don't make a U-turn in Vancouver. They can caught you. And in Surrey, it's a free hand. Uh, people have uh, sometime, uh, some kind of sentiment that nobody will call you. They are less officers. There are only 18 officers or 20 officers a day. So we have to make that confidence in the people of Surrey. Then uh, we have to change something. I don't know how, but uh, people have a common sentiment that a new force, a new policing model, it can do it. Mm-hmm. So that's why the community organizations and the religious organizations are supporting it. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, they think uh, the local police uh, will be under municipality and uh, province, and it will be more easy for them to go and outreach them, like the uh, people of Delta and Abbotsford and Vancouver go to their police boards. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems for me, just listening to you, there's a tremendous amount of frustration Number one. Number two, what you're saying to me is, well, it may not solve all our problems, but we do believe a municipal force is going to be much better at addressing what you believe are the core concerns of your community than the RCMP, for some reason, haven't been able to do for decades. Yes. If one thing fails, people try uh, another thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a, 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 a all party committee report. It's not I'm saying or any other person saying. All party committee uh, report uh, in Victoria. They are saying that the RCMP is not a fit model for search. Mm. And if if that uh, means I, based, based on the report that we had City Hall, if the if the municipal police force is going to cost more, you know, well over two hundred million dollars more, uh, you think Surrey residents and your organization are okay with paying more in taxes or in costs to deal with that trend? Transition, the full transition? Nothing is more expensive than your son or daughter's life. Gurpreet, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it, and I do understand your frustration, and I appreciate you making time for us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Jess, for your time. Thank you. That is Gurpreet Sota, organizer for Wake Up Surrey and a co-founder uh, as well. I wanted to mention that. Um, what do you think of what he has to say? You know, I, I have some views personally. Uh, I don't think the core challenge uh, in regards to uh, Wake Up Surrey and the fact that there is a predominantly am- among young South Asian males are dying and have died for many years. Uh, and we've seen that in our newscast beamed to us. But I don't think a municipal force or an RCMP force is going to have much of an impact. Uh, a good police work is good police work, whether it's RCMP or municipal. Mr. Sota believes a municipal police force can address or help address some of those local unique challenges. I think when kids involved in a gang life, uh, that isn't going to be policing. There's a broader deeper challenge there for society, whether it be parenting, whether it be more counselors, uh, whether it be more law enforcement, so be it. But I'm not sure if the SPS is going to be any better than the RCMP. Uh, as I mentioned in that interview, at one time, one year, we of all the murders in the Lower Mainland, 40% were South Asian males, are very close to it. Uh, and that speaks to the challenges, but it isn't just a Surrey issue. It's happening throughout the Lower Mainland. It was. Uh, And while municipal forces sometimes are a little closer, and I would agree, RCMP is a creature of Ottawa. Uh, It's an inertia uh, that uh, you can't get away from uh, as a force. Uh, But at its core, when you look at the law enforcement challenges, but specifically specifically working with kids who are dealing with gang life and getting them out of gang life, I'm not sure the SPS is going to be any more uh, successful than the RCMP. 
This is an ongoing issue under an NDP government. It was an ongoing issue under the BC Liberals as well. So it's not just law enforcement. It's an ongoing issue with a variety of governments uh, as well. So that's a challenge uh, before us as well. The second issue uh, that was raised today and has been raised in the past is that Sikh, Sikh, uh, Sikh temples in Surrey, one in Westminster and one Hindu temple in Surrey has come out in support of the SPS. I got to tell you, in my time covering organized crime in this city, and I've covered all types of uh, OC groups, not once have they brought up the issue of the Gurdwara, the Mandar, the mosque, the church, the synagogue. Yes, religion and faith have a significant role to play in our communities. But these kids, I'm not sure that's the organ- those are the organizations that they're paying attention to, particularly young South Asian males born here predominantly. In fact, uh, these various uh, religious institutions have difficulty attracting and being relevant to many of these young men today and now. Uh, and I and I fundamentally believe we collectively have uh, a role to play when we have such a predominant amount of young men dying. And we have to do more. We haven't done enough. But is that once again, is that the, the temple, should they be involved in this conversation? I mean, they have a role to play and, and I understand that. But I don't think these kids listen to religious figures. And that's my sense of it. I also believe... Uh, you know, both police forces, whether it's RCMP or the Surrey Police Service, not, neither force can guarantee that they're going to be rid of the gang issue in Surrey. It is deeper than that. But I do respect Mr. Suleta for speaking up, for organizing this group, and to stay with it. Uh, and he's forcing us to think deeply about how you deal with a real situation where young men are dying. And so I appreciate his time today. Well, it's no secret uh, that shopping trends have shifted to more consumers making online uh, purchases, particularly in the years since the 2020 pandemic, with the increased number of packages uh, being delivered directly to residences. The number of these packages being stolen has also uh, increased. There was a survey done uh, this year by CNR Research where 90% of survey respondents say they receive a package at least once a month and 55% claim to have packages delivered on a weekly basis. So you can see why these packages uh, are being stolen as they uh, sit there on your porch. Well, the New Westminster Police Department is working in partnership with community members to reduce parcel theft with the help of bait packages. Joining me now to talk about uh, this new program is Sergeant Justine Tom. She's a media relations officer for the New Westminster Police Department. Sergeant Tom, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jazz. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I like the uh, the intro there with the Grinch song. <laughs> well, I'll, that's, uh, I'll leave that to the talents of our technical producer, Ryan Lee Hall, who always uh, picks the right music. And yes, they are Grinches, that's for sure. Uh, nothing worse than ordering something you really want and it arrives and somebody takes it. How did this packet, how did this program actually start? I mean, someone has to come up with the idea. How did that come about? Well, I would like for us to take credit for this uh, program, but I can't. Uh, The bait package program has actually been used in a number of other jurisdictions throughout the Lower Mainland and North America over the last number of years. This is the first time we've used it, um, and it was actually one of our wonderful members in our street crime unit that identified this as an issue here and wanted to actually implement something Mm -hmm. to assist our community members. So how does it work? So what we are doing is, uh, obviously we are working in partnership with community members. These people have 
for the most part, been victims of package theft in the past. Mm -hmm. They are very happy to participate in this program. Um, And what we're doing is putting bait packages on porches, in mailboxes, in mailrooms. These are going to be, you know, single family homes, multi-family dwellings, townhouses, apartments, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And we are really, really hoping that it's going to uh, deter this type of crime, as well as identify people that are doing it and be able to arrest them. And so will you have technology that allows you to know if if a package is stolen, where where it's going, where it's at? Yeah, so even though I'm not going to specifically comment on like technology and techniques, these packages do contain technology that will help us identify and actually track down anyone who attempts to steal a package. I'm sure you've heard of, you know, the bait bait car program. There's like bait bike programs. It works very, uh, very similarly. Um, And basically we would be identified or we would be um, advised when a package has been stolen and we would be able to actually move in and make an arrest. It's it's quite interesting. You can see a lot of these, uh, you know, these, these, porch pirates as they're called uh, and in some cases on YouTube you can actually uh, there's video of them getting caught in fact I think we have some audio of that I I would not doubt it there's some good uh, entertaining videos out there there's somebody I think that makes homemade ones with like glitter in them yeah, I've, <laughs> seen, I've seen that here's, here's some audio actually I think uh, Ryan Lee Hall uh, our technical producer uh, captured some of it take a listen sure Oh, she got caught. And here's another one. That's done. You're done. <laughs> well, honestly, that that's actually one of the recommendations we have for You're people. Cops is coming. <laughs> so, sorry, you were oh, saying? I was just going to say, this is actually one of the recommendations we have for people. You can buy such good surveillance cameras nowadays, um, you know, any ones that can go in your doorbell or just home home video. And those actually do uh, make an effort or make a, you know, make an impact in us being able to solve solve these uh, incidents. So what, what would the charge be? I'm just curious. I mean, and there's tremendous, lots of charges there, but what, what would a person who stole an Amazon gift be charged with? So it would be charges of theft is what you would be facing. I see. And what's the penalty for that? Um, I can't even tell you off the top of my head. It obviously varies. Like there's different um, different levels of theft. It's based off um, the amount stolen. So there's theft under 5000 and theft over 5000 And I guess it would depend on, on whether or not you had a record or, or if it was um, – or if you just were inspired to take it uh, into your first time. I guess you probably get that sometimes where people just see it as a, a crime of opportunity. You see something sitting there and you go for it. It is absolutely, I would say, a crime of opportunity. And I would actually, you know, I would probably make a bet on this and that it's a completely an underreported crime. There are a lot of people that actually just don't report it to police. And when it actually comes down to it, it is a criminal offense. And if someone has actually had a package stolen, we absolutely, absolutely hope that you will report it to police. Well, Sergeant, uh, sounds like a fabulous program. Wish you all the best. Thank you so much. A Merry Christmas to you. Yes, Merry Christmas to you as well.
Well, right now, you're probably in the middle of your commute. Perhaps you're going through the George Massey Tunnel or driving over the Alex Fraser Bridge or the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge. We really don't spend much time thinking about these bridges and tunnels and other structures, except when they can't be crossed, thanks to our recent snowstorm. Take a listen. Canadian city that never prepares for snow or has any idea what to do when snow comes. Classic Vancouver loses its mind when snow hits. I've been stuck on the highway for almost actually more than seven hours from Richmond to Surrey. And they said that on Alex Fraser there are a couple of buses and somehow that spun out. I totally get that, but seriously, seven hours, you still can't fix it. That's insane. I left my work at four and it's 11.35. One in the morning is what you get. Well, that's what happens when these vital pieces of provincial infrastructure are blocked. So bridges and tunnels, and even our inland ferries matter. When they shut down, boy, do we feel it. They help, of course, move people and also goods and services as well. They've actually helped build our province. Our next guest considers these bridges and tunnels and inland ferries art. Historic Derek, Historian uh, Derek Hayes has just released a new book called Incredible Crossings, the History and Art of the Bridges, Tunnels and Inland Ferries that Connect British Columbia. Hayes hopes his new book leaves readers coming away with a deeper appreciation and enjoyment of these incredible crossings. Author and historian Derek Hayes joins us now. Derek, thanks for speaking to us today. You're very welcome. What convinced you to write this specific book? Uh, well, I'm, I'm basically a historian, and I, I write history books as a as a rule. And uh, but I'm also a keen photographer, and uh, so I had this idea of combining uh, the art of uh, the bridges with that history, uh, because bridges are often great subjects for, for photography because they have great curves and lines and things like that. And uh, plus, I used to I was uh, taking photos with uh, you know uh, maybe less than usual. Things like a fisheye lens that will do a 180-degree view in one in one uh, frame, and uh, it produces interesting results. So I thought, combine that with the history, and maybe make a book that other people might be interested in as well. Now, did you uh, put a lot of this work into this book during COVID? Yes, it was sort of a COVID project in a way. I was I was uh, about to go to Japan to do some research on a book on high-speed trains in, in March 2020, and of course that's exactly when COVID hit. And uh, But of course it turned out that during tw- the summers of 2020 and 2021, you could go all over the province. So I decided I would go travel all over the province and and uh, take photos and research the history and and so on. Uh, you know, basically doing what I could do uh, during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's impossible to I- include every crossing uh, or tunnel. Uh, did you uh, sort of have a have a line that said, okay, I'll focus on these? Instead of these, yeah, how did you go see, about uh, picking the the crossings that you wish to talk about? Well, yeah, there. Are, I figure there's about thirty five hundred bridges in BC, so yeah, obviously you have to be very selective. But the basic criteria was one either either a bridge that had a story of some sort, you know, a, an interesting story, an interesting history, or 
or that the bridge itself was artistically interesting. You know, things like uh, the Alex Fraser Bridge, you know, as a cable stayed bridge that's got terrific uh, uh, curves and, and lines on its uh, uh, suspension cables and so on. If you, you know, figure, fiddle around with the angles that you take the pictures and so on. Mm-hmm. So it was just a matter of either art or history, literally, um, was the ones that created an interesting story. Uh, are we losing some of these vital pieces of infrastructure uh, because of age or because they're not used very very often? Are we losing some of them? Yes. I mean, one of the things, I, one of the aims I had was to try and document as many of the uh, old bridges that were either in the process of disappearing or slated for for demolition or replacement, uh, or in one case, uh, actually in in the process of of being replaced. And uh, uh, I thought that would uh, document the the history in a way. I've always tried to take photos of things that I know are about to disappear. For example, the Albion Ferry in 2010, there's a photo in the book of, of what the Albion Ferry in the last week of operation, together with a, a poster sign uh, to the side saying "Save our ferries." You know, where because there was a, a group trying to uh, save the ferries uh, when they were replaced by the Golden Ears Bridge. Mm-hmm. I actually remember that specific uh, story because I covered it. I think it was a group of employees that were trying to get people together to purchase uh, the ferry uh, uh, at that time. What do you think the ferries, these bridges and tunnels, um, how do they fit in into the broader uh, history of British Columbia and our growth? Well, I mean, the basic issue is nobody would have gone anywhere without bridges or ferries, at least, uh, because of the the nature of BC. I mean, it's very mountainous with lots of uh, um, uh, rivers and and streams and you had to get over them one way or another. So it was quite early on that the province started uh, building uh, building bridges and taking responsibility for maintaining them as well. Uh, before that, it was always private, you know, particularly early ferries, and that were often uh, indigenous run and, and so on, just more or less on demand. Uh, but then the, the settlement was relatively uh, low density at that point, of course. Mm-hmm. One of the things I really enjoyed about uh, the book is that it's not just a, you know, Vancouver-centric, that you traveled uh, this uh, province and talked about the various infrastructure. I grew up in the interior, uh, in the Caribou, in Williams Lake, uh, and, uh, you know, incredible bridges there as well, but up up north, even north of of, uh, Williams Lake, when you get up to um, Prince George and, and, uh, you know, the Skeena country and, and of course, uh, the northeast. it, it, how, how did you set about your time? And it, was there a goal, a goal where you said, I will focus on this region for the next few weeks and then move on to the next generation? How did you go about deciding what bridges to choose and how and traveling to these regions to do the research? Well, I just I just made up a uh, I, I mean, first of all, I made up a list of bridges I, I felt, uh, you know, had to be in the book. Uh, or should be in the book because they had a particularly interesting story, not necessarily because they were the most important, but, uh, um, and then basically made up a schedule around that that uh, made kind of sense. I mean, it's difficult to cover the whole of BC because there's, there's uh, uh, you know, not, there's not a lot of roads in, in, 
in some areas. So uh, you have to you you cover some areas twice and and so on. But you basically just get it done, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you always been interested in this type of infrastructure? I know you're a historian, uh, but have you always been interested in bridges and roads and tunnels uh, at a young age? I suppose so, but I, my main interest was really photographic, uh, mm. actually, initially, as an impetus for this book. Uh, you know, I had a c- quite considerably large collection of photographs of uh, of various bridges and ferries, and uh, I, this was a way of uh, using them, I guess. Uh, so that's what I did. <laughs> uh, I, I'm very uh, curious, when you look at infrastructure today, uh, the tunnel is a, one example as we debate a tunnel over a 10-lane bridge right now uh, with the present government. It looks like it's going to be a, a, a tunnel of some sort. But uh, there's a lot of debate and conversation in modern British Columbian society where we, to a certain degree, have uh, politicized infrastructure and the building of infrastructure uh, and whether or not, you know, this this may, this piece of, this bridge may lead to more cars being used or we need to be focusing more on, let's say, SkyTrain or whatever else it may be. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think we've politicized infrastructure perhaps more so in the city than, than ever before? Well, perhaps, but I mean, it's, it's really a matter of uh, necessity, isn't it? I mean, like the Massey Tunnel, for example, is uh, vastly overcrowded. It's, uh, I think it's uh, considered to be the worst uh, bottleneck in the whole country. Uh, so, you know, I guess uh, if you think that all those drivers are voters, uh, then, of course, you, you want to please them. Although, quite honestly, the, the things aren't moving really very fast with uh, with uh, uh, respect to the Massey Tunnel, are they? I mean, they've, they've dead, they seem to be widening the roads either side, but that's about as far as they've got because they keep uh, changing the government keeps changing their mind as to what they want to do. Yeah. Well, it's, it's amazing as we talk about the Massey, and that's one one example. But, you know, as I'm look, I'm looking through your book right now, and it is amazing what impact this various, this this infrastructure, roads, bridges, tunnels, ferries, and uh, in, in, have, have um, been an integral part of the growth uh, and prosperity of British Columbia. And it's, it's fascinating that we... We seem to get into debates uh, this modern age uh, compared to when we actually got things done. So it, it is just a, a fascinating time. I'm very curious, do you have a particular piece of infrastructure or a handful of pieces of infrastructure that you really like, whether it's through their, because of what they represent in regards to movement of people, there are lines, as you've talked about, how they look, like, like the Alex Fraser Bridge. Uh, are there particular pieces of infrastructure that you really like in this province? Yeah, well, my fa- my favorite is definitely the Alex Fraser Bridge, but that's largely because of uh, a photographic viewpoint rather than any anything else. And you're you're mentioning the, the you know the politicization of things. Well, look at look at the ferries uh, in the interior, you know, including the one across uh, Kootenay Lake, which is considered to be the world's uh, longest uh, free ferry ride. Uh, you know, the people on the coast get a bit upset about that from time to time because they have to pay money to go from one island to, an, to, the, to the next, which is even less distance in some cases than, than some of these inland ferries that are completely free. And that the, uh, the uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, the reason inland ferries are free is, is probably as much political as anything. 
Um, now that you've written this book, anything that sort of interests you uh, in regards to the next project? You had talked about going to Japan. Uh, what kind of things are you thinking about or mulling over in regards to a future book? Uh, well, not really connected to, to, to this book exactly, but uh, I am uh, working on a book uh, about why things are the way they are in, in uh, Metro Vancouver. And uh, that does, of course, include uh, why some of the bridges are where they are and the history, but uh, but mainly it's uh, other things like road patterns and so on. Yeah, well, I think that, <laughs> I think that's a fabulous project, not only just because the decisions are made based on engineering, uh, but it's so, uh, in so many cases, it's also politics as well. So that's actually a fabulous project because I'm sure there's many, many interesting stories uh, uh, in regards to uh, how, why certain roads end up certain in a certain place and, and, and bridges uh, as well. Uh, Mr. Hayes, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed our conversation and all the best to you. And the book, of course, for our listeners is Incredible Crossings, the History and Art of the bridges, tunnels, and inland ferries that connect British Columbia. Uh, Mr. Hayes, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jazz, very much. That is Derek Hayes. He's a historian and author of a new book called Incredible Crossings, the History of and Art of Bridges, Tunnels, and Inland Ferries that Connect British Columbia. If you're looking to buy a book for Christmas, highly recommend it. It's a, it's a great coffee table book. Amazing pictures, uh, modern pictures, of course, and of course, many uh, from the past uh, as well. Well, Original Joe's is marking uh, the season of giving with a creative campaign to support local food banks amid unprecedented demand. This month, Original Joe's restaurants are hosting Jolly Beer Month, where a portion of every OJ's blonde lager sold will be donated to local food banks across uh, Western Canada. Joining me now is Adam Powell, who's Vice President of Operations at Original Joe's, and Hajira Hussein, the Executive Director of the Richmond Food Bank Society. Adam, Hajira, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Adam, let me start with you first and foremost. Uh, what was the reasoning behind Original Joe's deciding uh, to focus on um, the, the food banks uh, across uh, Western Canada and helping them out? Uh, well, giving in such a time of need, I mean, to, to be frank, I think that it was a, quite an obvious choice for us. I mean, the, the food bank has been a, always an excellent way uh, to give back in any season, but you know, with inflation, cost of food, and the, vis- the visible demand that was displayed in you know various media channels asking for assistance across many provinces that I saw, uh, there certainly wasn't any debate amongst our office team or community of restaurant owners that uh, this was the right decision. And I'm uh, sure Hajira can likely probably speak to the current demand in a moment, but uh, we just felt it was. Uh, really the only choice for us this holiday season. So is there a particular size you have to buy of, of the um, of the blonde lager? Uh, how, does, how would it work? Well, we thought best to achieve our goal of trying to trying to raise $100,000 to put to put food on tables. We went with uh, our 18 and 22 ounce, which is our biggest movers. So it's mm-hmm. like a logical, logical choice to pick the most popular items uh, through the holiday season uh, to, to get us across the finish line by New Year's Eve. So, so we're, uh, you know, really appreciative of the opportunity. Yeah, so if you buy an 18 or 22 ounce uh, of the blonde lager, $3 will be donated to the local food banks uh, in the region. So that is wonderful news. Hajira, give me a sense of what it's been like for, for the Richmond Food Bank in the past year or so. What are you seeing? 
Uh, Raf, the, the demand has been so high. We've never seen um, this kind of demand in, in the years that I've been with the food bank. Um, over 61% increase since the beginning of this year in our numbers. And a lot of that has to do with, obviously, the inflation, um, the refugee crisis that we have seen earlier this year. We are seeing a lot of Ukrainian refugees as well as uh, refugees from Afghanistan. And um, in addition to that demographic, we are also seeing a lot of students who are um, accessing the food bank at the moment. And that, again, also has to do with cost of living um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a ter- like it's, it's so hard to, to rent any place in Richmond yeah. at the moment. It, it- you know, when I when I hear that, I mean, you, you see the challenges every day on the front line. Did you ever think that the demand would grow exponentially the way it has in Richmond? It's a, it's a beautiful community, um, generous people, uh, you know, people viewed as an affluent community as well. Uh, but when you say 60% plus in regards to demand, uh, I, I'm actually quite shocked. We are too. We were too, actually. And we... we constantly um i get asked by by staff is is there a cap are we gonna stop people from at, at some at what point do we say no more and and the answer is we can't we are here to serve people and um and i know we it, times are tough and it is gonna get tougher mm-hmm. with uh you know with each passing week, each passing month, it is going to get, like families are going to, um, it's going to get harder for families to put food on the table. So um, all we have to do is just uh, continue with campaigns like these and um, just hope for the best because um, we we are living in a very generous community and uh, it is so heartwarming to see, especially this, this you know, Christmas season. Um, I was pleasantly surprised because I was, thinking that maybe because everybody else is feeling the pinch, our donations will drop. But um, we are, you know, we are seeing a lot of people come out and donate generously. And um, all they're saying is, I know times are tough, but there there are other people who are struggling more. So I I would like to do my little part. Yeah, every donation counts. But but I guess it's it's also when when you do receive a donation of those $3 and, and more, obviously, uh, per beer sold, it, you can actually, uh, you know, with your purchasing power, you can do a lot with those dollars uh, in your community in, in regards to buying specific goods and services that are needed in Richmond. Absolutely, yeah. All monetary donations, they allow us, I mean, they give us more buying power and uh, for every dollar that gets donated, we are able to provide $6 worth of groceries. Um, and yeah, we, we are able to stretch that dollar further. You said there was a 60, and 60%... Almost need like, yeah, you said there was a 60% increase. In regards to specific numbers, like how many people come by the food bank uh, in Richmond usually in a week? Um, beginning of this year, we were serving 640 families. Now we are doing 1,000 families a week, which is equal to 24 to about 3,000 individuals every single week. Wow. So this is the the busiest you've ever seen it in your community? Mm-hmm. It has been. Even like uh, the pandemic, we were seeing, uh, we saw a 49% increase and we thought that was unprecedented. But this is this is something like we've, you know, 
we never expected. Wow. Well, I'm glad, uh, you know, groups like Original Joe's is getting involved. Uh, and of course, if people do want to uh, donate on their own, they can also, of course, I'm sure, donate uh, on your website as well. Adam Hajira, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you Thanks so much ask. for the opportunity. Bye. Take uh, care. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.